from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before our worship begins, I'd like to share with all of our members and friends a little bit about our financial situation. Regrettably, our projection for year-end reveals a deficit of $420,000 on our $5.7 million budget. While we've worked diligently to manage our resources and expenses, giving in 2022 and 2023 have fallen below expectations. I assure you that our trustees, session, and financial team have thoroughly explored all options to mitigate this situation. If we are unable to bridge this financial gap, difficult decisions will need to be made. This could include budget cuts, which might impact various aspects of our ministry, including a potential reduction in personnel for the year 2024. However, we believe that as a community bound by faith and shared values, we have the ability to overcome this challenge. And so I call upon each member and friend of First Pres to consider how you might be able to contribute to our financial strength. If you've already given in 2023 and have the capacity to go the second mile, please give more. If you've not given in 2023, please give today. You can mail a check, give by credit card, uh, give by stock transfer, or use the QR code that will be on the screen in just a few moments. Our congregation has had a successful capital campaign, securing pledges of over $36 million. Our ministries with children and youth are bursting at the seams. Our worship attendance, both online and in person, are strong. Our community ministries continue to serve our most vulnerable neighbors and friends with compassion and great care. Our staff is strong, gifted, and committed to serving the mission of the church. My hope is that our giving will increase uh, to support the strength of our ministry in this season of our life together. We will continue to communicate openly about our financial progress and any developments that we have as we move forward. Please keep our congregation, our leaders, and our shared mission in your prayers. If you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. And thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast. Remembering that we believe that our scriptures are the living word of God, how will the Holy Spirit speak to you and to me in the reading and proclamation of God's word this morning? Our first scripture is from Matthew chapter 6. Hear God's word for you and for me. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, 
or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus continues, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will God not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Amen. Thanks, Katie. Our uh, second text is uh, part of Paul's correspondence to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was probably 16 years old when he was called to pastor the church in Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians. And in Paul's correspondence with Timothy, uh, he is encouraging Timothy in his pastoral ministry. And part of that encouragement comes from the sixth chapter, verses 17 through 19. And this is Paul speaking to this young pastor. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, break open uh, this word afresh to us this day. Speak to our heart and speak to the heart of the matter. That by your grace and your love and your unending mercy, we would know who we are and we would know who we're called to be. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, that's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, on Friday, I had uh, the chance to do something that I have never done before in my entire life. I had the opportunity to play a round of golf with a PGA Tour professional. 
Um, I know he's happy uh, this morning because his Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets won last night. Um, no more comments on that. I know we got some Carolina Blue also in the church. But Stuart Sink, a graduate of uh, Georgia Tech, uh, I got a chance to play with him, 18 holes at Druid Hills Golf Club. We've got church members who are friends of his. The Sinks live in the neighborhood, and uh, church members made this connection, and we got an opportunity to play golf together. Well, not only is Stuart Sink a tour professional, but he has also won uh, the British Open, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, he was also at one time the fifth uh, rated player on the planet, so pretty accomplished golfer. And besides watching him hit the ball a very, very long way with both accuracy and uh, precision, and besides his remarkable ability uh, to read greens and make long putts, I, I was struck by what Stewart shared throughout the round as I peppered him with questions about his routines and his habits and his discipline in terms of doing what he needs to do to stay on the PGA Tour. Stewart's one of the oldest players on the PGA Tour. He's 50 years old, and so there's a routine, there's a habit that he has to engage in order for him to compete at that high of level. I was interested to learn all about the physical and mental and technical preparation he goes through in both the off-season and in-season, and of course you'd expect that, right, from a professional athlete. Of course you would uh, expect that professional athletes have this kind of regimen, but even so, to hear him talk about the physical therapy, the cardio routines, the hours upon hours of practice, and the mental and technical coaching as something, in his own words, that he needs to do, that he won't be able to compete unless he does this. He needs to do this. It just reminded me of a truth that I think we all know. To be good at anything, to be good at anything, takes hours upon hours upon hours of discipline and practice. The truth is, if we're going to be good at anything, there are things we need to do in order to achieve our definition of success. If we're going to be good at anything, whether it's golf or it's preaching or it's music or it's teaching or the law or medicine or as a CEO or as a manager or in construction or hospitality or in financial advisement or in facility management and banking and consulting or even to be a faithful parent, a good friend, to be a decent son or daughter, there are certain things that we need to do if we're going to be successful in those vocational aspects of our life. I think there's a difference uh, between what we should do and what we need to do. I think it's the difference between what we should do and what we need to do. Something I should do implies a recommendation or a suggestion. Something I should do lacks, I think, both urgency and obligation. Something I should do is an activity that is advisable and desirable, but I get to retain some flexibility in deciding when or how I will do it. Something I should do is different than something I need to do. Something I need to do indicates a higher level of obligation and necessity. Something I, I need to do is more urgent. It's more essential. It's mandatory for the task at hand. Something I need to do indicates a moral responsibility. 
it indicates a commitment or requirement that must be fulfilled. Friends, there's a difference between should do and need to do. Stuart Sink, in his own words, needs to engage in these daily routines if he's going to stay on the door at 50 years old. And the same is true of us in our professional and our personal lives. And it's true in our life with God as well. There are things that we need to do if we are going to accomplish the task at hand, the goals that are in front of us. Now, some of you have a habit of reading the sermon title ahead of time. Some of you read the scriptures ahead of time. Some of you see that on our email blast. Some of you didn't at all. That's okay. But for those who did, you may have noticed that the first part of my uh, sermon title today is why you need to give. Why you need to give. And for some of you, when you read that or when you hear it even now, you thought, well, that's quite blunt and frank. Some of you may even thought, preacher, it would land a whole lot softer if you said why you should give. Why you should give. Of course, many sermons and and calls to congregations regarding Christian stewardship often try to make the case as to why one should give of their financial resources. To be sure, I've preached some of those sermons. I've, I've written those stewardship letters. I've put out that clarion call as to why you should give. But in recent days, and in this moment of transparency that I want to share with you, in recent days, in my own prayer life, in my own reflections, in my own study, and some of the experiences I've had of late, I've been convicted that I may have been missing the mark when it comes to the core motivation of Christian stewardship by asking the wrong question. By asking the wrong question. The question is not why should I give or why should we give? The question really is, why do I need to give? Why do we need to give? As I said, many sermons on Christian stewardship and financial generosity seek to answer that question, why should I give? And the answers are often uh, produced, uh, the the answers rather that are often produced are twofold. Uh, One answer is transactional, and one is philanthropic. And I want to tackle each one, and I want to start with transaction. Uh, Right away, we need to acknowledge that that transactional rationale has not been uh, maybe traditional in the Reformed Christian community. We're a Reformed uh, Christian body. We're a Protestant body. Uh, We don't often talk about transactional giving. In other words, I give to get something, right? Uh, Today is Reformation Sunday. We call it that because uh, it's the closest day to October 31st, which is the day that Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door in 1517 to, uh, to launch the Protestant Reformation. Back then in the Reformation, there was a lucrative market, you may have heard of it, called the sale of indulgences. Nod your head if you've heard of this before. The sale of indulgences. The Roman church... Uh, sort of leverage this uh, indulgence market uh, to, to stuff their coffers. They would uh, sell uh, pardons, literally sell forgiveness for the person purchasing the pardon or for a loved one who they believed was stranded in purgatory. And the more pardons you bought for them, the higher they got to climb toward heaven. 
sale of indulgences involved the exchange of money for these certificates, and it was the impetus, in, in large part, for the Reformation itself. Now, we don't see that in our time today, but I, I would suggest that, that there is a practice that may be sort of born out of that, or at least a distant cousin of indulgences. 500 years later, we have this subtle variation that many call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. The prosper, prosperity gospel says you should give because when you give to God, God is going to bless you. It's automatic. It's a transaction. I'm going to give to God and I'm going to get health. I'm going to give to God and I'm going to get more money. I'm going to give to God and I'm going to get faith. In the secular world, and I don't argue with these studies, we see it uh, framed in a different way. It's absent of God, but it's framed uh, sort of uh, in a different way, but, but still the same line of thinking. Social scientists have studied what happens to us when we actually give something. When we're generous, psychologists have studied what actually happens to us when we give. They prove that when you give money away, people who are generous, they tend to be happier. They tend to be healthier. When you give, you get a giver's high of serotonin and, and dopamine and oxytocin, and they're all secreted in your brain. When you give, your blood pressure lowers. No more Lasartan. Just give. Right? You have, you have a longer lifespan. You have less stress. All this to say is that when someone frames the question, why should I give, responses often come that are transactional. The core motivation for giving is to get something. To get something. Now, to be sure, I've never preached that sermon, nor have I ever written a stewardship letter to that end. But there are folks who believe that that is the core motivation for generosity, to get something for themselves. For Reformed Christians like us, uh, maybe transactional uh, ways of answering the question are not familiar to us. But what is familiar uh, is what I would call philanthropic answers to that question, why should I give or why should we give? Philanthropy in its basic sense is others focused, right? It seeks to meet the needs of an organization or the needs of individual uh, people. It's not so much what I get vis-a-vis -vis transaction, but in philanthropy, it's what somebody else gets. You follow me? It's what somebody else gets. Philanthropy is a good thing. It's altruistically motivated. We give because my church needs money to pay the staff. I, we give because the church needs to keep the air conditioning on, even on the last weekend of October in Atlanta. We, we, we give because our church needs money to run its programs, to reach out to those living in poverty, to support our global partners in their ministry of the gospel. We give to individual persons who we meet, who we interact with, who are in need. We do that because we know the, the, the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25 when he says the, that you should feed the hungry and you should clothe the naked and give drink to the thirsty. We're called to welcome the stranger, to visit the sick and visit the imprisoned. And we can do that. We can accomplish that through financial generosity. I, I think it's stating the obvious that, that many of us are more familiar with the philanthropic response than the transactional one when it comes to this question, 
Why should I give? We know that organizations need to pay their staffs, churches need to pay their bills, run their programs. The poor need food and shelter and safety and security, programs that support their empowerment and self-sufficiency. And unlike transactional giving, where the motivation is to give in order to get something, philanthropic giving is about what others get. It's not what I get, it's about what others get. And I think that's how many of us, at least I, have thought about Christian stewardship over the years. We should give so that others get. After all, to whom much is given, much is required. But I want to suggest this morning that there is another level of maturity when it comes to our understanding of the core motivation of Christian stewardship. And in my sermon title, you'll see the the phrase subversive. The subversive core of Christian stewardship is not found in transactional motivations or philanthropic ones. The core motivation for giving in the Christian life is not to get something, whether we're getting it or whether someone else is getting it. That's not the core motivation. The subversive core of Christian stewardship is not to get something, but to become something. Not to get something for us or for someone else, but it's to become something. The subversive core of Christian stewardship is to become more like Christ. That's the motivation to become more like Jesus Christ. And I use the word need instead of should because the Christian is well aware that the pursuit of Christ-likeness is not just a good suggestion. It's not optional. It's mandatory. The subversive core of Christian stewardship is not something we should do, but something we need to do because the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Christ. It would be like saying worship is optional or prayer is optional or forgiveness is optional or care is optional or justice is optional or mercy is optional. No, there are things we must do that God's grace allows us to do through the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. That is the journey of the Christian life. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul encourages Timothy and the community uh, that the Timothy pastors to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? Because that is who Christ is. That's who Christ is. And that's what Christ has done. In Matthew 6, part of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he invites his followers into a pattern of sacrifice, a pattern of life that trusts in the deepest parts of who we are, that trusts that God will provide for everything we need, and that God invites us to prioritize the kingdom of God. In other words, to do what Jesus has done for us in his incarnation and at the cross, for he demonstrated the deepest contours of trust and dependency on God. He prioritized the kingdom of God and its mission to bring good news to all people. And part of the way, part of the way we live into that pattern is through financial generosity, not because we'll get something and not because others will get something, but because we will become something. We're going to become more like Jesus more sacrificial, more trusting 
of God's provision in our lives, more focused on the kingdom and its mission, more mindful that everything that we have, and I mean everything, is a gift from God. And the pursuit of God is so much more important than the pursuit of earthly treasure, wealth, glory, or fame. I want to close uh, with this story. It's a story that helped shape some of my thoughts today, and when I tell it, you'll understand why. There's a woman who's, who's not a member of our, our congregation, but she's been volunteering at our Sunday morning prayer breakfast. Uh, as long as I have been here, and she's probably been doing it longer, about a month ago, she asked me a question I have never been asked, never been asked in my 20 years of ordained ministry. She said, Pastor, would it be okay if I give my financial tithe to First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta? She said, I'm not part of a church right now, and I need to give somewhere. I said, of course. <laughs> We'd be glad to receive your tithe. And in that moment, I thought, what if every member and friend of this church came up to me at some point and said, would it be okay if I give 10% of everything I earn to the church? Would that be okay? What kind of transformation would we experience in our community if that happened? What so impressed me about this saintly woman was her maturity of faith knowing that she needed to give, not that she should give, but that she needed to give as a practice by God's grace that equips her to become more like Christ. Just two weeks ago, the same woman came up to me and she said, Pastor, I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to give my tithe to this congregation. It's a blessing for me. Her expression of gratitude still leaves me gobsmacked because one of the, the hard and fast rules of philanthropy, right, is to thank people. Thank people early and often for what they have given. You can't thank people enough. And friends, we should thank people. But to have her thank our church, think about this. To have her thank our church for receiving her gift revealed how subversive the core of Christian stewardship truly is. She was thanking me because our reception of her financial generosity helps her be more like Christ. What if the same was for you? What if the core motivation was the same for me? What would, that, what would that do in your life and in the life of this church if we saw our giving as a way in which we become more like Christ? I think that would change a lot. I think that would change a lot. The subversive core of Christian stewardship is not transaction. It's not even philanthropy. It's become more like Christ. For he is the face of what it means to be human. 
He is our destiny. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Thank you.